Amen. You guys can have a seat. It's good to see you. If you have your Bibles, open it to Philippians, the, the book of Philippians. And we're continuing our series on joy. You know, several years ago, I was a Young Life leader, and I, uh, I used to take kids rappelling and rock climbing out at Mineral Wells State Park. And that was really out of my comfort zone because I don't like heights. I'm okay with heights in an airplane, but not when I could like fall off a cliff and, or roller coasters, that sort of thing. It like really knocks my equilibrium off. And, uh, but I would take these kids repelling and it would be a 40-foot drop off the edge of the cliff. Now, whether or not their experience and my experience off the edge of this cliff was a thrilling adventure or more terrifying than we ever feared, depended upon whether or not we anchored our rope to an object that was heavier than we were. For example, if I anchored my rope that I was going to jump off the edge of the cliff to, or these kids' rope to a twig or a, a loose rock or a, a, a rock that weighed less than them, then it would be a tragic disappointment. But if we anchored our rock to a boulder or even uh, to these bolts that were anchored into the top of the cliff, then it would be a thrilling adventure. And in the same way, whether life is more fearful and more disappointing than we imagined, or whether it's more of a thrilling adventure than we ever imagined, depends upon what we anchor our hope to. It depends upon what we anchor our joy to. For example, if we anchor our joy to something that's fluctuating and moving like finances, or if we anchor our sense of happiness to to something that's fleeting like health, or if we anchor our sense of happiness to something that's fluctuating like even relationships and family, then we are in for disappointments. But if we anchor our hope to the rock of Jesus Christ, that no matter what any day may bring, our joy is going to be as steady as that in which we anchored our rope to. And this was the experience of the Apostle Paul. So if you have the book of Philippians, we are going to look at our text. Are you ready for this? Philippians chapter 1, verse 19 through 21. And we read, the last part of Philippians chapter 18, chapter 1, verse 18 reads, Yes, and I will rejoice. And if you were here last week, you know that this rejoicing was not taking place um, on a yacht. This rejoicing was not taking place on a cruise. It was not taking place in vacation. It was not taking place when everything was neatly and carefully under the Apostle Paul's well-managed control. No. We mentioned last week as we began this series, most self-help books if not all, function from the premise that all of life is, out of our, is, is within our control. We just need to make a few alterations. But if you live long enough, you realize life is entirely out of our control. And the moments that life is in our control is only an, an illusion that the Lord allows us to live in within that season. Life is entirely out of our control. And the book of Philippians that has been called the book of joy was written not when all the circumstances were within the Apostle Paul's control. Everything was out of his control. He was in prison, and yet this is called the book of joy. Why? Because his hope wasn't anchored to something in this life that could fluctuate or move, like finances or family or world events or health. 
or dreams or visions or how other people may behave or act or think or what they may say. But his hope was anchored in Jesus Christ. Therefore, in prison, he could say, yes, and I will rejoice. And in another place in Philippians, he says, rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say, rejoice. How can we rejoice always? Because it's what our hope is anchored to. Rejoice in the Lord, that one infallible, immovable rock who invites us to be our source of hope. Yes, and I will rejoice. Now on to verse 19. And 19 and 20 is one long sentence, and it's one incredible sentence. And it's our text for this morning, and we're going to break it down. Rejoice, I will rejoice, verse 19, for I know, circle that word know, for I know through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance, as it is my eager expectation, circle that word expectation. It is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be ashamed, but that with full courage, and you can circle that word courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. And that was all one incredible sentence. And then into verse 21. For to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Let's pray. Father, we pray in Jesus' name that you would open up our heart and by your Holy Spirit infuse your hope into our heart so that we anchor our hope into the immovable rock of Christ so that no matter what tomorrow may bring, Lord, we have joy because we are anchored to you who is in control and immovable and infallible and perfect in love and perfect in power and perfect in wisdom and perfect in goodness. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. And we read three sources of Paul's hope in Christ. The first, I have joy because of what I know of Christ. That first word we circled was no. I have joy because of what I know of Christ. And isn't it easy to let this... Um, disease of worry and anxiety creep into our mind so that we rehearse and rehash all of the things that we wished for we were, were in our control and because we wish these things were in our control and because we wish these things were different then we allow them to rob us of our joy and when we fixate our mind on things that are out of our control and everything is out of our control, but it's an illusion again that we wished it was in our control, then we start bemoaning our circumstances and we lose our joy. This is called worry and anxiety, which can also be defined as the God can't disease. God can't deliver me. God, God can't be stronger than this. God can't make good of this. God, God can't make something beautiful come of this. God can't be glorified in this. God can't create good in this and we are susceptible to the God can't disease when we focus on these three statements if only and if only causes us to rehearse and to rehash the past and our heart is filled with regret if only things had been different if only I had conducted myself differently if only somebody didn't say or do that if only this tragedy didn't take place if only this didn't happen well then I could have joy today if only and focusing on if only causes regret to fill our heart 
And then what if? That God can't disease allows this, this seed of what if to creep into our heart and mind, whereas if only focuses on the past and fills our heart with regret and remorse. What if this takes place? What if that happens? What if uh, someone I love gets this disease? What if someone I love dies? What if I get this disease? What if... My child is born unhealthy. What if I don't have a child? What if I don't get married? What if my spouse is not faithful? What if I lose my job? What if the economy crashes? And when we focus on what if, our heart is filled with fear. If only causes us to look back so that our heart is filled with regret. What if causes us to look ahead so that our heart is filled with fear? Or we ask why? Why has this happened? Or why hasn't this happened? And this causes us to look around and it fills our heart with sorrow. When the Apostle Paul was in prison, he wasn't saying, if only I would have made this navigational decision differently. If only I would have made this leadership decision. If only I would have responded to this leading, perhaps, instead of what I thought was, was, was the proper leading. If only they didn't say this. If only they didn't do that. And he wasn't looking ahead in fear. What if I don't get a favorable trial? What if I'm executed? What if false witnesses rise up against me? And he didn't look around at his circumstances and ask the question, why? Why has this happened? I'm living a surrendered life to the Lord. I'm following him. I'm doing my best to be obedient and look at the circumstances that I found myself in. He didn't ask if only, what if, and why? Because he was focused on Christ, that immovable, infallible rock of sheer power and love who is entirely good and entirely wise. And so he said instead, this will turn out for my deliverance. You see, our thoughts are seeds, aren't they? And this, this quality called joy which is so much more than an emotion. Happiness is an emotion. There's nothing wrong with being happy. I would rather be happy than sad. But without this quality of joy, even happiness is empty and superficial and painful. And happiness certainly won't descend into the valley of the shadow of death, but joy will walk with us into the valley and comfort us and carry us into a new season. Joy is so much deeper than an emotion. Joy is a person. We read in Psalm chapter 16, verse 11, In the presence of the Lord, there is fullness of joy. We read in Hebrews about Jesus, that God the Father anointed God the Son with the oil of joy so that he had more joy than all of his companions. When we think of Jesus, we think of many things. We think of holiness. We think of sacrifice. Um, we think of patience. Perhaps we think of spirituality, we think of a disciplined prayer life and fasting, but when we think of Jesus, do we think of the one uh, character quality, that personality quality that seems to rise above the rest, and that is his joyfulness. Jesus was joyful, and when Christ is in our heart and we are in fellowship with him, his presence causes us to have joy. And as we read in Nehemiah 8.10, the joy of the Lord is my strength. And this joy, it's not a whimsical, superficial emotion. It is deep. 
Whereas sorrow and happiness are mutually exclusive, you can't have the two. You can't be at a loved one's casket and be filled with a giddy happiness. Sorrow and happiness are mutually exclusive. You can't hear bad news from the doctor and be happy. Sorrow and happiness are mutually exclusive, but sorrow and joy go hand in hand. In fact, when circumstances are at their darkest, joy is at its deepest. As the Apostle Paul said, we are not like the rest of the world who grieve without hope. Our hope and joy run side by side with our sorrow. So that, yes, we can sorrow. So that, yes, circumstances can spiral out of our control. But our hope is anchored to Christ. And we have a joy, a joy in the Lord, a joy that's indescribable and full of glory, a joy that the world didn't give us and a joy that the world can't take away. This quality of joy is not an emotion. This quality of joy is a fruit. It's part of the fruit of the Spirit. In fact, we'll read about nine fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5.22. Love, joy, peace, joy. Joy is a fruit of the Spirit. And what do you have to do in order to receive the benefit of fruit? Well, if you want an apple, then you have to plant an apple seed. If you want a cherry, then you have to plant a cherry seed. If you want an orange, you have to plant an orange seed. And if you want the fruit of joy in your life, then you have to plant seeds to bring forth joy and we plant seeds in order to bring forth the fruit of joy in our heart and mind scriptures tell us through our thought process we read in philippians 4 8 finally brothers whatever is true whatever is honorable whatever is just whatever is pure whatever is lovely whatever is commendable if there is any excellence if there is anything worthy on praise think about these things Our thought process is how we plant seeds. We can plant seeds to the flesh, and we can reap the fruit of the flesh. And the fruit of the flesh is fear and worry and anxiety and jealousy and lust and discords and hatefulness and all of these ugly things. But if we plant seeds into the Spirit, we'll reap the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace. We read in 2 Corinthians, take every thought captive to obey Christ. If we are, as Luke testified earlier, sealed and secure in our salvation and heaven bound, then why do we have to take every thought captive? Because the Lord wants us to have a high quality of life in this earth. Jesus said, I have come so that you might have not just eternal life, I have come so that you might have life and life more abundantly. And the only way that we're going to have abundant life in this fallen world is if we take every thought captive because our thoughts are the seeds that bring forth the fruit in our heart and mind, either of despair and fear or joy and peace and love. Which is why we read in Romans chapter 8, for those who live according to the flesh... And when we read flesh, we can just infer there that that also means the long category of fruits associated with the flesh, lust, jealousy, discord, hate, sorrow, anxiety, fear, all of these things. For those who live according to their flesh, people who are driven, their lives are driven by this ugly list that the flesh brings forth, watch this, they set their minds on the things of the flesh. Our thought process, again, is the seeds that brings forth either the fruit of the flesh or the fruit of the Spirit. But those who live according to the Spirit, 
And when we see spirit, it is inferred that that comes with all of, 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 of the list of, of the fruit that the spirit generates. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. Those who live according to the spirit set their minds on the things of the spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Which is why we read in Romans chapter 12, verse 2. This is a new day. His mercies are new every morning. And if you want to live in a new way, as the saying goes, if you always do what you've always done, you'll always get what you've always gotten. And in the same way, we have to change. We have to recalibrate our entire thought process to sow into the Spirit so that we bring forth fruit of the Spirit. As we read in Romans 12, 2, be transformed by the renewing of your mind. We have to recalibrate our thought process. Why? Because in Proverbs chapter 23, corroborating everything we've just read, we read, as a man or a woman thinks in his heart, so is he. As we think in our heart, so are we. And Paul could be sitting here in prison, but he wasn't wringing his hands. He wasn't angry. He wasn't ticked off. He wasn't mad. He wasn't worried. He wasn't filled with anxiety. He wasn't depressed. Why? Because he was taking his thoughts captive, and he was sowing into the Spirit through his thoughts. He was focusing on the promises of God, and that's why he could say, this will turn out for my deliverance. He was focused and fixated upon the promises of God. He allowed his minds to feast upon prayers. He allowed his mind to feast upon the word of God and the promises of God. He allowed his mind to feast upon the prayers of the church at Philippi for him. And because of that, he had joy. And note that he had joy, not because he was delivered. He had joy because he was promised in his heart that he would be delivered. Do you see the difference? If he deferred his joy until after he was delivered, well, that would be kind of like happiness, wouldn't it? He would be attaching his hope to that which he saw. But his hope was anchored to the promises of God, and therefore he had joy even before he was delivered. I'd mentioned you guys last week, I just touched on uh, a, a difficult season in our church family. As you can imagine, to, to plant a church, it, there, there's going to be difficult seasons. And one in particular difficult season uh, that the Lord gave me as an anchor to hold on to. Isaiah chapter 49. I don't know that I could have made it through that season if that chapter, those promises in that chapter were not my reality. See, our five senses are how we relate to the world around us. We touch, taste, see, hear, smell, feel, and, you know, things that we see and what other people say or do or think and circumstances that are unfolding around us. Our five senses are how we relate to the world around us. But this sixth sense, joy, is how we relate to the things of God. Hope and faith, it's how we relate to the things of God. And we're able to relate to the things of God because we anchor our mind to the things that God says so that... What's happening around us is really irrelevant because our reality is, is, is that and how we relate to God through faith. And so I was relating to God through Isaiah chapter 49, holding on to those promises. And um, to an extent, um, 
even a bit blind to my circumstances around me. I was very well aware of them. But my reality, as far as I was concerned, was not what I saw or felt around me, but it was what God said to me in Isaiah chapter 49. Many other promises I was holding on to, but that one in particular was something that I read and rehearsed and stood upon and prayed and believed every single day and night throughout the day, for a good year or so. One of the promises in there, I'm just being vulnerable with you guys, but one of the promises in Isaiah chapter 49, there were many, but one in particular was that I will look around one day and I will say, where did all these children come from? This is Isaiah 49. Who has bore these for me in my bereavement? And I will hear them say in my hearing, let's expand our territory. This place is getting too small for us. Fast forward time, and I won't go into it, but fast forward time, and the Lord had had sovereignly orchestrated uh, HopeWorks Christian Academy. And today there's about 90 kids, Monday through Friday, uh, from pre-K all the way up to 12th grade, going to our school. It's a Christian-based school. And so through that, we're ministering to them and, and, and bridging them into our youth group. And we're working on bridging them into our children's ministry. And, and it, it's an incredible ministry. But the other day, I was in my office and I had the door opened up. And um, I just heard the sound of laughter and chatter from these 90 kids echoing through the halls and I remember I just closed my eyes and I remembered Isaiah chapter 49 the promise and my heart was just filled with the peace that God had fulfilled that promise and the, the blessings of the children are awesome. It's, it's, it's awesome. But for me, the deepest blessing there is the realization yet once again of God's utter faithfulness and how his word is more reliable and more dependable than anything that we see or feel or what other people think or say or do around us. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of God stands forever. And the only way that we will have unquenchable joy is if our hope and confidence is anchored to the promises of God. But what's so absolutely remarkable about the Apostle Paul and something that I want to grow into and I want you to grow into is that he was able in a prison to close his eyes and savor the promise of God that this will turn out for my deliverance before he experienced the fruition of that promise. And before we experience the fulfillment of any promise, the, 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 the level of faith that God is calling us into is to simply receive a promise from God. And no matter our circumstances, no matter our trials, no matter our sorrow, to be able to close our eyes and relish in the promise before it's been fulfilled and to say, this is my reality. God is so faithful and he is so good to us. Paul had joy because of what he knew of Christ. And secondly, Paul had joy, and we have joy because of what we expect from Christ. Let's look at verse 19 again. For I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my, for my deliverance. And then verse 20, verse 20, as it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in me. You see, his knowledge 
of God's promises had to go deeper so that he clung to them by faith. In other words, we cannot just have theological conviction. We must have a sense of personal expectation. He didn't just know, but he fully expected. He didn't just know what God said or what God promised. He fully expected that God was going to do it for him personally. And when God's truth, that which we know about God, that which we know God says, ignites our hope, when we expect him to do it for us personally, joy in our heart is born. And our reality then becomes God's word rather than our trials or what we see or feel or experience in the world around us. His faith went beyond simply theological conviction, but personal expectation. I believe that God not only said it, I believe that God is going to do it, and he's going to do it for me, and I'm expecting it. It's not here yet. Just like Christmas isn't here yet, but I expect it, and I know it's going to be here. My birthday's not here yet, but it's on the calendar, and I'm expecting it. It's going to be here, and Paul knew my deliverance is not here yet, but it's on the calendar, and all I have to do is persevere and endure, and I'm expecting it. It will arrive. And thirdly, I have joy because of what I surrender to Christ. You see, it's one thing to anchor our rope to something immovable. That's the rock. I know it. It's as immovable. It's, it's bolted. It's anchored. And, and, and although my, my, my senses might deceive me and try to psych me out, I know I've got a conviction that this, that this anchor is not going to be uprooted. And Paul knew the promises of God were sure and true. But he didn't stop with that. He jumped off the side of the edge. He expected it. He, 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 he placed his faith in those promises. He expected that it would hold him up. And in the same way, joy is born, not only when we know what God promises, but we expect it. And if you simply know it, but you never expect it, then you'll be going through difficulty, and you'll find yourself perhaps even resenting promises that people try to encourage you with. The joy of the Lord is your strength. All things work together for the good of those who love him. He's able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine through this. If God is for us, who can be against us? You know, trust in the Lord with all your heart, lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him and he will direct your steps. Nothing can separate us from the love of God. These are truths. These are anchors. These are certainties. More certainty than, 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 than that piano or, or, or these pews. It's, those are more reality and more certain. Because as we said earlier, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of God stands forever. And we know, we have the conviction that that truth is reliable. But if we don't place our expectation in God fulfilling them in our lives, it can make us resentful and we'll look at them and scoff and we'll not even be cynical toward them. And they'll seem superficial and trite. And there's nothing superficial or trite about them whatsoever. We are called to walk by faith. And God gives us an opportunity to place our expectation in the truth of what he says. So that our conviction is met with expectation. Then and only then will we know the joy of the Lord to be our strength. But then we have to surrender. We have to surrender to Christ's choosing of delivering to his 
means of our ultimate blessing and his ultimate glory in our life. We have to surrender to his timing, to his choosing, to his means of how he's going to reap the greatest glory from our life and render to us the greatest joy in our life. And his ways are always higher than our ways, which is why his ways will always require trust, absolute ruthless trust that he knows best and we don't that he is infinitely good and he cannot be wrong and he cannot be unkind and he cannot be mistaken and he cannot fail he is infinitely good and we are never called to understand him did you understand that you and I are never called to understand him how can we understand him how can an ant possibly understand the World Wide Web and all the information therein? Infinitely more, how can we possibly begin to understand God? We are never called to understand Him, but we are called to trust Him. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. We're called to trust Him, not understand Him. And in all our ways, acknowledge him. That's surrender to him. And he will direct our steps. And his ways are higher than our ways. Therefore, we have to trust. But his ways will always render the greatest glory and the greatest good, his glory and our good, than we could ever imagine. Habakkuk understood this. The Hebrews were about to be... um, They were about to be severely disciplined by the Babylonians. Uh, The the, the nation of Judah was about to be severely disciplined by the Chaldeans or the Babylonians because of their sin and wickedness. But it was a people that was exceedingly more wicked and sinful than them. And Habakkuk didn't understand it. He didn't understand God's ways. And yet, probably one of the most powerful prayers of surrender in all of Scripture, Habakkuk the prophet says, Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit beyond the vines, the produce of the olive fell, and the fields yield no fruit, the flock cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. You see how his hope is not at all anchored into what he sees or feels or is experiencing or what people might think or say or do. He says, I will take joy in the God of my salvation. God, the God is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer's. He makes, my, he makes me tread on high places. You know, when it looked as if Everything was completely out of control when Jesus came to this earth. An innocent man went to the cross. A mob circled him. There was a false trial. People lied. The lies were believed. People were manipulated. Nobody honored this innocent person. They beat him, ridiculed him, scoffed at him. And people could have looked at the Son of Man hanging upon the cross, and they could have said... Where is his God? In fact, they did. They said, he saved others. Can't he save himself? Where is God now? He's calling out to him. Why doesn't he save him? 
And Jesus from the cross said, my God, my God, in his humanity, he was 100% man and 100% God. He wasn't half man, half God. That would make him more than a man and less than a God. He was 100% man, 100% God. And from the cross, in his humanity, Jesus said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And darkness covered the face of the earth. And when it looked like God was entirely out of control, nothing could have been further from the truth. God was in absolute control. 700 years earlier, the psalmist says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? God was not out of control. Events did not spiral out of God's will. In fact, Jesus was fulfilling prophecy. This was absolutely God's will. When it seemed that God was most out of control, he was at work. When it seemed that that chaos was winning the day, Jesus was fulfilling prophecy. When it looked like God was neither good enough nor big enough to stop this chaos, God was being exactly that, infinitely good and infinitely big to redeem us from our sins, to pay for our sin, to restore us into a right relationship with him. When it looked like violence and cruelty were winning the day, nothing could have been further from the truth. This was the greatest expression of love in all of eternal history. God was accomplishing his greatest glory and our deepest joy through the cross. As we read in Colossians, when you and I were dead in our sins, God made us alive with Christ. His greatest glory, our deepest joy. How did he do that? He forgave us all our sins. Having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness which stood against us and condemned us, he took it away, nailing it to the cross. An innocent person went to the cross, but by God's grace, a guilty person died there because Jesus, who knew no sin, became sin for us so that he became our sin and died and our sin was paid for. And so we could become the very righteousness of God. And right then and there, he rendered sin and death a toothless bulldog, all bark, no bite. As we read, Jesus disarmed through the cross the powers and authorities, and he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. What, yeah, let's praise Jesus. Put your hands together. And so it is with us. When it looks like God is most out of control, you can be certain that God is absolutely in control, working all things together for his greatest glory and our deepest good. But we have to anchor our hope to Christ to nothing else, nothing that we see, nothing that we feel, no timetable that the world imposes, but Christ and Christ alone. He is our hope. He is our help. He is our joy. For every cry, Giglio writes, there is one answer, and that one answer is Christ. His name is I Am. We say, I need help, and Jesus says, I am. I need hope, he says. I am. Who could possibly be smart enough to figure this out? I am. What works? I am. What lasts? I am. What's the latest thing? I am. What's the hippest thing? I am. I need a fresh start. I am. I need a bigger story. I am. My vision is bigger than my resources. I am. Nothing's real anymore. I am. Who can I trust? I am. I'm not sure who's on my team. 
I am. Nobody's listening to me. I am. I don't have a prayer. I am. My marriage is sinking and I don't know where to turn. I am. I can't hold on. I am. My kids deserve more. I am. I'm pouring into others. Who's pouring into me? I am. If we fail, who will get the job done? I am. I'm not sure why I'm here. I am. I've given all I can give and it's not enough. I am. I am tired. I am. I quit. I am. I need a drink. I am. I need a fix. I am. I need a lover. I am. Somebody just hold me. I am. And what does this great I am say of myself? He says to you and me, I am the way, the truth, and the life. He says, I am the resurrection, I am the life, I am the savior, I am Jesus, I am the solution, the restorer, the builder, the answer, the wise one, the coming one, the mighty one. I am the Lord and there is no other. I am God and there is no one besides me. I am the first and the last. I am the alpha and omega. I am the beginning and the end. I am the Lord, that is my name. I will not give my glory to another or my praise to idols. I am who I am and that is my name, my memorial name to every single person. He's your I am. This sermon isn't designed to, to, to motivate you or pump you up. It's discipleship. It's designed to give you tools to walk out of here that you can apply. Set your mind on things above. Allow your thoughts to sow seeds into the spirit so you can reap the fruit of joy. Anchoring your thoughts to what you know, but don't stop there. Jump off the side of the cliff. Expect Christ to hold you up. But what will come of me? Surrender to Christ. Let him deliver you. Let him catch you in his way and in his choosing and in his timing. It's infinitely more than we could imagine or even understand. But it will render him the greatest glory in us, the deepest deepest joy. Would you stand with me, please? With your heads bowed, do you need the joy of the Lord to be your strength? If your life were an athletic event, are, are, are you being plowed over by the defense? Are you not able to make ground? Are you not able to make traction with joy and momentum and anointing? Do you, do you need the joy of the Lord to be your strength? The Lord's joy is stronger than anything that can come against you. My desire for you is to be overflowing with joy. When somebody says, oh, you go to HopeWorks? Yeah, that's those people. They always have joy, don't they? That was such a characteristic of the early church. They had joy because that was a characteristic of Jesus. He had joy. Does joy light up your countenance? You know what the best time to plant an oak tree was? 50 years ago. And you know what the second best time is? Today. We have to sow seeds to render joy in our life. Now's the time. Let's start sowing these seeds. Thinking upon high thoughts, the promises of God. And not just thinking upon them with theological, convic theological conviction, but expecting God to perform them in your life, to deliver you, to move mountains, so that you're stunned and speechless and, and, and irrevocable praise overflows from your heart and mind with tears running down your cheeks and your heart is pounding faster and, and you know that God intervened and he delivered. 
And when you expect God's promises, that will be your reality. It will. In the manner of his timing and his choosing to result in his greatest praise and render your deepest joy. And perhaps you've been run over by life. And I just want to pray for you to walk in the discipleship, to walk in the fullness of joy. So would you raise your hand so I can pray for you, please? And Father, you see these hands. And mine too. I've, I've felt a little beat up myself lately. Lord, but uh, in your presence is fullness of joy. So we return to you, God, to reflect upon you, to think about high thoughts 24-7. It doesn't matter if you don't have a five-hour prayer life. What matters is, is that you never go an hour without praying. Do you see the difference? It doesn't matter if you don't have a five-hour prayer life, but never go an hour without praying, without reflecting on high thoughts, without communing with Christ. In his presence, there is fullness of joy. And those promises that are spoken from his word, expect them in his timing, in his way, for his glory, in your deepest joy. Expect them. It will be more than you ever imagined. And so as a church family, let's just respond with worship. And let's look at the cross, what seemed to be the darkest hour, what seemed to be the most horrific hour in human history, um, was the greatest display of God's power, love, and faithfulness. So it is with you. So it is with you. What seems to be the darkest hour in your life, God is behind the scenes, at work, in control, rendering his greatest glory and your deepest joy. You can count on it. I've experienced it over and over and over, and it's true. It's all true. He really does work all things together for the good. He really is able to do exceeding abundantly above all we could ever ask or imagine. His ways truly are infinitely beyond our ways. His promises really are yes and amen. He is a promise maker, and he is a promise keeper. He is good. Father, you saw the hands that were lifted. We pray in Jesus' name that you would be greatly glorified. And, Lord, we pray that they would experience the deepest joy as a result of your faithfulness, which is infallible. The grass withers, the flower fades, as does everything else. Relationships, family, health, finances, economy, momentum, everything fails except for you, our God. You are the faithful God, and your words will never fail. And we anchor our hope in your promises and fully expect you to perform what you said you would perform. And we trust in your time and your manner of choosing to be our deliverer for your glory and our deepest joy. Praise you, Jesus, that there is joy in the prison. To you be the glory.